Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. We have the honor of hosting uh, Richard Evans, who I'm sure is a Hall of Fame bound one day for his uh, coverage of tennis. Thank you, Richard, for taking time out on a Sunday and speaking to us. Glad to be with you. I just want to know how this all started for you, uh, the reporting journey, uh, and uh, why you chose sports reporting while growing up. And is it just tennis and cricket or more sports as well? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to start off by plugging a book because I've just written my autobiography, which answers all those questions. <laughs> it's called The Roving Eye, which was a column I used to do for World Tennis and then Tennis Week. And it starts day one for me in Paris, born, that's where I was born, and then goes on through the British Army. And um, uh, to answer your specific question, I uh, was always interested in newspapers, uh, even when I was 10, 11, 12, I used to rush out in London and get the Evening Standard, uh, which was prophetic because that was the paper I ended up working for. And uh, at the age of 13, I sat down with my mum and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a journalist. And I was lucky. I just knew what I wanted to do, which is uh, really a piece of luck because I know so many people in the world who are still searching for what they really love or really want to do. And um, so I left school at 17 and went to Lords, where I happened to know the um, man who st stood on the gate to the pavilion. Um, had to show your pass to Joe Gaby, who also ran a cricket school in Chiswick, where I used to go to try and improve my forehand defensive, um, not very successfully, but anyway. Um, and I said, Joe, I want to get into sports writing. Who do you know? He said, funny you should say that. Um, I, there's a news agency, sports agency, just opened in Fleet Street, a guy called Reg Hater, and his colleague Ron Roberts of the Daily Telegraph is going to come here tomorrow. I think they're looking for some young man. I'll introduce you. To cut a very long story short, I was introduced. Reg Hater said when I went round to the office, uh, if you think you can write, write me 300 words on wasps and Saracens, the rugby match, um, and uh, if it's good enough, I'll send it to the Times because they want to report. And amazingly, I wrote it and he looked at it and he said, yeah, that's OK. So the following Monday, it appeared in the Times. And, uh, you know, it was a combination of luck and my nascent writing skill. And uh, we took it from there. And I started writing, uh, not tennis, actually. The first few years with haters before I went in the army uh, was uh, mostly football and rugby and cricket. And then when I came out of the army, I couldn't go back there because he'd already filled my post, but he had to find me another job. And what he found me was the job of rugby and rowing correspondent on the Evening Standard. However, I joined the paper on the Friday before Wimbledon, which was then the Friday of Queens. And uh, the Evening Standard, um, edited by Charles Winter, who is Anna Winter's father, if you read Vogue, um, he had hired Althea Gibson to write for the paper the previous year. And... Um, the literary editor had done it, but he didn't want to do it again. He enjoyed it, but he had other things to do. So Charles Winter said to the sports editor, you've got this young man joining the paper today. Uh, give him to Althea, which changed my life. And I went off to Queens, introduced myself to Althea Gibson, the first black player ever to win Wimbledon. 
And um, we worked together from Monday. I was sitting in the press box at Wimbledon writing her copy. The next year, they hired Jaroslav Drobny, who was a real professor of the game. We did that together for three years. I learned so much about tennis. And uh, eventually, I became tennis correspondent of the evening. And so that's how it started. But that's just the beginning. <laughs> so in, in your journey, if you could recall, how has sports journalism changed over the years, and particularly uh, in tennis? And how was the press, uh, press room environment when you first covered Wimbledon to something like what just happened a few weeks ago? Well, the one astounding thing that is totally different, and luckily my mother kept my cuttings in a book for me, without which I couldn't have written The Roving Eye. And the most amazing thing is that the sports editors did not want or expect quotes from players. Uh, can you believe that? You went to a match and you didn't bother what the captain had to say afterwards or what the prize scorer or goal scorer or uh, the guy who'd scored the 100 had to say. You just wrote the piece as you saw it and sent it in and they were perfectly happy with that. So that is the huge change because anybody who sends in a report on any kind of sporting activity now without a quote from a participant is going to get yelled at by the editor. Um, so that's one change than the biggest one. Um, the atmosphere in the, in the press room at Wimbledon when I first covered was very uh, sort of by today's standards, sort of starchy and old world. Uh, you're the new boy. Who are you? Uh, everybody was pleasant. One or two of the older correspondents sort of reached out and took me under their wing a little bit, gave me some uh, advice, like David Gray, who became a great friend, great writer for The Guardian. Um, but uh, it, it, was, uh, it was all more formal. And there were some great writers around, like Jeffrey Green of The Times. Um, and I got to know them all, and I was accepted uh, because they felt I was fairly serious and could do the job. And so um, I think that's how it's changed. Has social media compromised the level of tennis reporting? I mean, for example, even guys like me now have a platform to give my opinions. And luckily, I was just at Montreal and I'm just an upcomer. You know, I have a tennis podcast. But is too much coverage a good thing? Oh, I don't think uh, too much coverage is a bad thing. I think uh, the whole social media has ruined um, pros uh everybody's just uh, so intent on getting words that fit on twitter or bash out something on their iphones with thumbs whirring away at a million miles an hour and they're not really thinking about constructing a sentence they're just delivering information or opinions which has its place it's changed the world in which we live totally but has it done anything for journalism and the writing of journalism? No, I think it's a detriment. All right, let's do a segue uh, with your background. I think you are one of the probably best people to give your opinion here. English are very big on tradition and history, and Wimbledon embodies that. How has a place like Wimbledon or Lords evolved with the current times? And is this something the rest of the tennis community or fans fully understand how those places operate? No, I don't think the fans understand what goes on behind Wimbledon. I think Wimbledon is a specific example um, of uh, the amazing sleight of hand because if Bill Tilden or Fred Perry um, walked through the gates, the Fred Perry gates of Wimbledon today, they'd know instantly where they were. They would recognize the place without a second moment of 
thinking, where am I? So it looks the same, even though number one court has, has gone and been moved, even though there are, there's a roof on the center court, uh, even though there's a huge television building with studios and all the equipment, uh, they've managed to do all that. They've managed to keep pace and actually lead technologically in many ways um, as to how a sporting event should be covered um, and presented to the public while maintaining the tradition and feel of the place. And I think that's partially because it's a private club, unlike the other Grand Slams, which are run by the federations in whatever country it is. Wimbledon, the All England Club, is a private members club, only 300 members. They keep the membership down primarily because everything is done for the championships and they don't want to have to give away too many free tickets. So everything is done on that basis, and they pride themselves and insist. The chairman um, told me this two years ago. He said, we are so successful, and this is such a contradiction to everything else you will ever hear to do with professional sport in today's age. He said, we are so successful precisely because we have no sponsorship. I mean, that is a shattering statement for anyone else trying to run anything in this day and age. But as you know, they keep the center court clean. There's only uh, Slazenger and uh, Rolex who have one clock uh, because they are traditional helpers rather than sponsors. They provide a service. And he, he says, the, chair, the chairman says that is it is our uniqueness. It is the fact that we are our own brand. We are Wimbledon and we are not XYZ Wimbledon. And that is why we can do what we do. And so Wimbledon have managed to pull that off. Lords, on the other hand, um, have not. They've got advertising everywhere. They, they've got the, what is it, the J.P. Morgan Spaceship Press Center um, module, whatever you want to call it. Um, but Lords also <clears throat> has done a fantastic job of rebuilding the ground with a sort of flair about it, a sort of modernity without ruining the atmosphere. And that in itself is uh, amazing. So well done to the MCC. Um, the pavilion stands majestically at one end of the ground and hopefully will forever. Um, but to Lords, while changing a lot, increasing capacity, um, has managed to retain its feel. And for me, if you had to ask me where I would like to spend an afternoon, give me the long room at Lords on a nice Sunday day, watching Middlesex. It doesn't matter to me that there aren't many people in the ground. It is a sort of cathedral. It's a cathedral of sport. And Lords, for me, even more than Wimbledon, which I adore, Lords is the place I'd most most like to be. I kind of agree. I mean, I've only been to both places once and that too on guided tours. And I'm a bigger tennis fan, but I felt Lords just was uh, had its own mystique uh, slightly more than Wimbledon. And Wimbledon was magical itself. Uh, that brings me to my next question. Uh, this year's Wimbledon, there was a lot of fuss. Who gets to play on center court? If money is made from TV rights, does it really matter if Murray or Federer play on court one? Help us understand this dynamic 
and the decision making as various fan bases always sense favoritism on court assignment in court assignments are very difficult because if you've ever tried to run a tennis tournament uh, with big names and limited courts or Wimbledon is not limited courts but there's always a controversy of who should play where and it's very very difficult for the order of play committee because they have to take into account so many factors they have to take into account the appeal of the player to the crowd the appeal of the player to the television companies who are paid fortunes to cover the event i.e. at wimbledon if uh, an american is playing who may not be as popular as Roger Federer ESPN will want John Isner on the center court if at all possible um that sways opinion it doesn't dictate who plays where but it certainly has an effect the television companies who have bought rights to the tournament this goes for every tournament sit in m- mostly on uh, the uh, order of play committee so they can offer their opinions if not demands and so it's always very difficult the other factor is all about gender the wta and the women never feel or often don't feel that they get a fair shake we we had that at washington dc just a couple of weeks ago when there were huge complaints that the women weren't getting enough court time on center court um it's very very difficult because uh there is an appeal some players have a bigger appeal than others um we're in a phase of the game now where we have four absolute historic superstars in Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic and Andy Murray who demand center court virtually by their presence and what they've achieved in the game the women don't have four they actually have two one is pregnant serena williams so she's not playing maria sharapova controversially was banned for 15 months and she's only just trying to come back and the other women apart from you could say venus uh are not draw cards to the extent that the four top men are and that's just it's not sexism it's just where we are at the moment in the history of tennis it could change we could suddenly have three or four women who became so popular that they were more popular than the men but that's where we are at the moment so the men are hogging the limelight and when the order of play committee sit down at mixed tournaments to try and work out who should get on which court um they've got a bit of a problem uh they they do try and make it as even as possible but it's not always very easy fair enough uh uh since we you know have limited time with you i want to get few other questions in and one is uh, i followed you on twitter and you have been pretty outspoken about uh legendary australian lou hoad as a co-goat or the greatest player along with federer what is about hoad's game that separated him from laver because we've been told laver is the greatest coming from that era yeah well the person you should talk to is rod laver because <laughs> rod will tell you how he used to kill him um their head to head record is so slanted towards hoad it's ridiculous um but there was a, there was a little bit of an age problem there and the fact that uh, rod laver grew up idolizing lou hoad because he was just 3 or 4 years older 
And uh, so that that was a factor. But just to concentrate on Lou Hode, he was one of the strongest men who ever played the game. Um, an Olympic um, weightlifter um, who trained the Hopman Davis Cup team told me, he said, I've never been able to give Hody a physical task that he couldn't do. He's the strongest man I've ever known. This was an Olympic weightlifter. And he was. And he had so much ability with his racket skills that he often confused himself. He said, I I've got so many choices. I often uh, am late on the shot because I'm not I haven't decided which shot to play. I'm getting confused trying to describe it. And it was his confusion. He had so much ability. He could play so many different shots. He cut the end off his racket handle to make it an inch shorter so he could wield it more like a ping pong bat. And he had a dynamic serve. He had all the shots in the book. Um, his problem was, A, his career in, in later years was hampered by a chronically bad back. And also, he, he didn't always concentrate, and he'd often had too many beers the night before. But on hard boards at Wembley, Jack Kramer's Pro Tour used to play at Wembley indoors in the winter. And one tournament, I saw Lou Hode take a first set, six love, in 13 minutes of his greatest rival, Pancho Gonzalez. 9,000 people rose to their feet to acclaim the greatest set of tennis I've ever seen played. Hode went for every line and hit it. It didn't last. Gonzalez, being the player he was and the fighter he was, came back and won the match. But that gives you some idea of the skill and the ability and the strength of Lou Hode, who remained the greatest player I've ever seen until Roger Federer, who I just think is probably even better for a variety of reasons, which you can see. You can see... Uh, in a few hours, because he's going to be playing yet another final in yet another big tournament in Montreal. So, if it's uh, Howard and Federer, uh, what separates them in your mind? Is it Federer more skillful, or Federer's byproduct of today's athleticism and uh, all the training and how professionalism has kicked in? What would this separate the two? Uh, I know it's kind of unfair, but just. Yeah, it's it's always very, very difficult to evaluate when there's such a distance between the two players. So much has evolved, different rackets, different speed, different training, a different era for sports medicine, um, all those things. And I do think that um, Federer is playing in an era where we have four of the greatest players of all time. That's not to say that Lou Hayho didn't have big opposition. Uh, you know, there was nothing wrong with Pancho Gonzalez or Tony Trabert or Frank Sedgman or Rod Laver, etc., etc. They were great players, too. But this era, the fitness, the power, the equipment uh, makes me think that Roger Federer is the greatest. He, he's, he's the greatest mover. He's such an amazing athlete and everything comes so easily to him. And um, he's so graceful. He's he just um, becoming a little bit unreal, actually, what he's achieved this year, coming back from six months off to win two Grand Slams and uh, win two immediately after the Australian to win two hard-court ATP 1000 events in Indian Wells and Miami. I mean, it's just phenomenal what he's achieved and what he continues to achieve at the age now because he's just had a birthday of 36 
It is incredible. All right, let's take, uh, take a step back from Federer, but a step forward from Hode. Uh, Eugene Scott, the book you referred to me, has totally painted Bjorn Borg like he was the first true superstar of the game. What was it like covering him back in the day as a main story in press rooms across the majors? And you think he left something on the table that if he, if he left the game too early, I mean? Well, yes, he, he was special. He, he was the first um, tennis player to get teeny boppers screaming, squealing, screeching, uh, and uh, reaching for his autograph. Uh, I mean, he caused scenes at Wimbledon that they'd never seen. Uh, this blonde Swede with the loping gait and the sort of laconic personality. Uh, he was a huge contrast and stood out because of it uh, against Ilya Nastasi, Jimmy Connors, and John McEnroe. And his popularity was partially based on the fact that he was so different from those three raging lunatics who were wonderful players, but they were um, off the charts as far as behavior was concerned. And Bjorn Borg never put a foot wrong, never said a word that was incorrect, just went about his business and was a terrific champion. Um, he got a little bit lucky um, in contrast to what Roger Federer has to face. He had a window at Wimbledon um, in his Wimbledon winning years between John Newcomb and John McEnroe. In between, there was no great serve and volley player. And to win Wimbledon, you had to serve and volley in those days, faster courts, harder balls. Uh, Roscoe Tanner was the best, but he wasn't a John Newcomb and he wasn't a John McEnroe. Uh, he but took him mind. to a big final and uh, Roscoe Tanner was a fine player. But so Bjorn had that window um, and he grabbed it uh, because he was a fantastic player. But as soon as John McEnroe came along, they had that great tie break. Bjorn won that match. But after that, it was going to be McEnroe who was going to win. And that had something to do with Bjorn retiring early. But it had much more to do that he appealed uh, to the ITF, the pro council who were running the game. The ITF was part of it. Um, saying, I've been playing tennis for 10 years, starting at 16. I'm tired. I need time off. I don't want to have to play whatever it was, I think 15 tournaments a year. And can I have some recognition for what I've achieved? And amazingly, uh, they said no. I'm surprised because Philippe Chatrier, who was chairman of the council, really knew tennis, really knew what he was doing. And they said, no, we can't make an exception for you. And Bjorn said, if you don't make an exception, I'm going to retire. And they called his bluff, and he called their bluff, and a tragedy for tennis happened. Bjorn Borg, being as, as tough a champion as he was, he said, okay, that's it, I'm retiring. And, of course, a year later, they realized what a mistake they'd made, and they made all sorts of rules that if you'd played a certain number of years and won a certain number of tournaments, et cetera, et cetera, you could reduce your schedule. But it was too late. We lost beyond. Uh, another player that comes to my mind, and I always wanted to ask you know, someone like you about that, uh, how do you see Martina Navratilova as a catalyst? Uh, do you see there's anyone else that uh, changed the game uh, like she did, or what's your opinion for tennis catalysts? No, I think Martina stands out. Uh, I think particularly at that stage of the development of the game. Um, Ivan Lendl took it up a notch on the men's side, and I'm talking about fitness and strength. Um, and Martina certainly took it up a notch. Once she'd um, 
uh, escape from Czechoslovakia and become an American citizen. In the first year, she did little more than gorge herself on all the goodies that she could find in the in the pastry shops in America that she hadn't been able to find in uh, Prague or wherever. And she was a little bit overweight to start with, but um, she was uh, given advice. She started on something called the Hass diet, and it changed her completely physically. She lost a lot of weight, and she went into the gym, and she made herself even stronger than she was naturally. And uh, she took the whole level of fitness and tennis up to the extent that Chris Evert, who was her lifelong rival, um, had to do something about it as well. And she actually went to the um, gym that I was talking about earlier in Melbourne. John Lloyd was her husband at the time, and he took her to see this uh, trainer and uh, put her through a lot of physical work. And Chris had to make herself stronger to be able to continue to compete with Martina. And uh, the pair of them as a result, but Martina was certainly the catalyst and, and the first one to do it, raised the level of fitness on the women's tour dramatically. Uh, talking about Chris Everett and Martina, in your uh, time covering tennis, what are some of your favorite rivalries uh, that you have witnessed and they may not be mainstream, but uh, what are some of the matches that are most memorable? Well, there's, uh, we'll be lucky if we ever see a 14-year, I think it was 14-year rivalry of the standard and um, skill uh, and respect uh, that uh, was established between Martina Navratilova and Chris Evan. Uh, they remain good friends to this day. They were good friends uh, when they were rivals. They played a series of the most fantastic dramatic matches in all the Grand Slam finals. And we'll be lucky if we see anything like that again. Obviously, we have this rivalry between the top four that I've mentioned on the, on the men's side now. But uh, talking about great matchups and rivalries, I, I always like to see a contrast in style. I can't think of uh, two matches that I've enjoyed more. I remember commentating the BBC radio on them and having uh, spoke to Mark Woodford. Uh, Mark was my uh, summarizer during one of them. And I'm talking about Patrick Rafter, servant volley, real Australian style, and Andre Agassi, one of the greatest returners and baseline players the game has ever seen. And they played twice at Wimbledon in the semi-final, I think both times, and it was classic. Uh, both matches were just, uh, for the connoisseur, you couldn't ask for anything more. And I turned to Mark Woodford and I said, I'm enjoying this so much, I never want it to end. And he agreed. And uh, that stands out for me as, uh, as a great um, combination of two styles and skills on a fast court, Wimbledon, the servant volleyer against the great returner. Yeah, tennis uh, keeps expanding. You know, it's one of the most international sports. And uh, uh, what you have seen or covered over the years, who are the players that have taken tennis to different markets and different uh, masses or fan bases? In my opinion, Becker... Uh, did it for you know a lot of countries like ours in India. Nishikori does it today. Williams sisters have done it to a different fan base. Uh, who are the groundbreakers in here, in this in this category who have taken tennis to a different market? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, Boris Becker certainly had a had a huge effect. John McEnroe. I mean, I think there are there are players who who've taken tennis outside the country club, outside Wimbledon, 
outside the traditional followers of the game. And I don't think that's an, a, a, a national boundary thing. I think it's just universal. And I think the players that did it were Elena Stasi, Jimmy Connors, and John McEnroe with Bjorn Borg in a different context. I think uh, people who'd never been interested in tennis, especially in America, but also worldwide, and you have to factor in the, the television coverage. It depended so much on television coverage. Uh, and as soon as countries got proper television coverage, they could see these stars. And uh, they, the stars of that magnitude drew sports fans who weren't necessarily tennis fans into the game. And those four that I've just mentioned did it back then. I think Boris Becker uh, certainly um, built on that. And then uh, there were the women players like the Venus and uh, like Venus and Serena uh, with the black community. Arthur Ashe had a, an enormous impact there, although uh, black youngsters, male youngsters didn't follow in, follow in his footsteps as they should. But Arthur Ashe had an impact on Africa. I've got three chapters on Africa in my book, The Roving Eye, because I accompanied Arthur to, first of all, on a State Department tour to English-speaking Africa, and then uh, French-speaking Africa, and then controversially South Africa. And uh, Arthur Ashe had a huge impact on those sporting populations. And I think in India, the Amritraj family had an enormous impact as well. Um, amazingly, Maggie Amritraj said, uh, uh, my three sons are all going to win the junior title in India and they're all going to play at Wimbledon. And Anand, Vijay and Ashok did what mummy said. And it was a great, amazing achievement. And Vijay, with his personality, he's now a UNICEF ambassador and heaven knows what else. He did an enormous amount for spreading the word and the goodwill that um, he created around tennis. So, uh, and, uh, and now we have these, these amazing uh, champions in, in Federer, Djokovic, Murray, and uh, Nadal. Uh, I think Nadal in the Spanish-speaking world has taken it to a new level all over South America as well as Spain, but he is universally loved anyway. So I think tennis really does break boundaries and is not restricted to nationalities because the people who get to the top um, become international superstars. And tennis, after football, soccer, is the most international sport. I spoke to Federer in Montreal a couple nights ago, and he said there are not many things broken in the sport, but he would see uh, more parity in points. Uh, say, you know, a quarterfinalist can only bag, say, 360 points in a Masters 1000. Looks like he didn't even have a good tournament. Do you agree the points structure could be revamped, and is there anything else that's broken in the game right now? Well, I don't know about broken, but I think certainly the point system could be looked at. It is very difficult um, to to get up into the top ten. It's certainly been in, uh, difficult to get into the top four because they keep on winning. But um, even into the top ten is difficult. So I think Roger, excuse me, Roger has a point. Um, I think um, we're going to see a whole slew of new ideas tested in the next-gen tournament that is being held for the first year in Milan between 
the last ATP 1000 tournament of the year at Bercy in Paris and the ATP finals at the O2 in London. The under 23 or under 21s, I'm not sure, are going to play a championship in Milan indoors. And of course, it'll be headed now by uh, Zverev and Shapovalov and uh, anybody else who qualifies in that age bracket. We've got a great number of very, very promising young male players coming up the pipeline at the moment. Um, and all sorts of things will be tested, like, uh, well, no ad, which is used in World Team Tennis anyway. Um, there will be no warm-up. The players will walk on court and there will be a, a coin toss and they'll play. The crowd will be able to move around as they want with no restrictions on getting in during play. Um, there will be a whole variety of different ideas and coaching will be allowed in, in limited form during a match, which happens on the women's tour, but doesn't happen on the men's tour. So it'll be interesting to see. And as um, Chris Gamode, the innovative chief of the ATP told me just uh, last week in Washington, he said, some of, the, some of these things will be tried and will be discarded because they just don't work. Others will be picked up and used so that in 20 years' time, people will say, what, they took just to get a match started once it got on court? How was that possible? And so we'll just see. We'll see what works. But I think it's a very, very good idea of the ATP to try, experiment, because if you don't try and put it out there, then it will never happen. I know we're already over time. I have a few more questions, so I'll only ask one more. I'm greedy because, you know, I don't know when I'll speak to you next. So how would you rank the following in terms of the greatest feats we've seen in the last decade or so? Nadal's uh, 10 Roland Garros titles, Federer's 23 Grand Slam semi-street, uh, the Novak Slam, or Pete Sampras' six-year reign as number one, which is kind of very understated. <laughs> I don't think you can put them in order. I think they're all extraordinary achievements. I think uh, Nadal uh, is amazing probably a little bit more amazing than people think because he, he, he changed his game to win Wimbledon. He changed his game quite seriously, which is very difficult to do. Uh, and uh, winning Wimbledon for Rafael Nadal was a huge achievement. Um, and I think uh, he should be recognized for that. But I think Roger Federer's record is becoming ridiculous. Um, you know, the, the, the number of slams, the number of ATP 1000 events, the years uh, at number one, not, a, not as long as Pete Sampras, are you saying? I think that's correct. Pete Sampras was a huge, fantastic champion as well, but he couldn't play on clay at the level that Roger Federer can play on clay. Uh, Roger Federer's clay court achievements would be so much great, greater, but for one man. Um, he won Hamburg four times. Hamburg is slow clay, one of the more difficult clay court tournaments to win. Pete Sampras never won a uh, clay court tournament. In, uh, I take that back. He won the Italian. Yeah, <laughs> but he, he, never, he never got in the final of, a, of the French. He never won the French. So I think there, there are these differences. But... Um, they're all great achievements. Everybody, everything you mentioned is incredible. They, they were very rare and are very rare champions. 
All right. Thank you very much, Richard. I mean, I know I've already taken and exceeded uh, the time slot. We uh, I'm really glad we did this, and I hope the listeners uh, will enjoy this chat. And hopefully, you know, we can do this sometime again. That's very uh, good fun. Thank you. I appreciate it.